0: One of the primary features of the human condition, one that I think we can all recognize is the wish to be loved, the wish to connect. And this can be something that we recognize and see very clearly in ourselves and others, the the deep longing and yearning, we could say, to be held, to be cradled, to be appreciated, cared for, looked after, met with a sense of acceptance and appreciation. These are all different ways in which we may understand or experience this, This, as I said, very fundamental element of what it means to be what we are. That there's this draw, this pull to, to connect towards love and to be loved. And it's something which is not just a, a human phenomena, but seen in other parts of the, the animal world. And uh, the strength of this particular pull, and particularly in, um, I think, probably mammals and Maybe primates, even more strongly so. Something that's been reflected on and explored. And there was an experiment that I heard about some years ago where a very small baby monkey was placed in a space apart from its mother. And it's kind of a sort of sometimes the things they do one wonders about whether this is a good idea, but nonetheless, this was done. It's actually quite an obvious thing. It wasn't a good idea, I wouldn't have thought. But this is what they did to see what would happen if they placed the baby, monkey, young monkey, in a cage where on one side of the cage was some food and water and nourishment and on the other side of the cave was a soft, warm, fluffy, kind of surrogate mum. And what they discovered, perhaps not entirely surprisingly but quite shockingly in a certain way, is that the baby monkey would stay clinging to the soft, warm, fuzzy thing like its mother and wouldn't take food or water, wouldn't go away from it to feed itself or to drink. Now, of course, if it's really the baby monkey's mother, the feed and the drink is right there provided by the mother. But that sense of how strong that wish to connect, to have that sense of something warm, cuddly, comforting holding supportive friendly that that drive may be even stronger than the urge to feed ourselves there's something interesting I think to reflect on in the in the context of what we're engaging here the the importance of being loved is of course I think well recognized well documented no one would suggest that this is a sort of a an unskillful orientation of the heart at all and you know we've understood that in a very fundamental way, the the baby human child will not survive unless there is some expression of love that it receives. And yet, if one looks at what goes on and reflects on this, I think there's more to this need we have for love than just to what we get from being loved, important as that is. It seems to me, if we if we look at it, what we see in that process, reflect on it, is that it actually offers us a certain kind of safety, a certain kind of holding in which we allow ourselves to be in contact with our sensitivity, with our own loving capacity, in fact. And it's really when we are loved that we feel safe to let our hearts be open, that we feel safe to let the natural loving capacity that is very much at the heart of what we are to be felt, to be expressed. And so, although it is something that we very much seek for and do need to be loved, so so to speak, we could also reflect on what it is that that gives us, apart from the obvious that it's really nice and lovely and we enjoy it and like it. What is it that it gives us? One of, the, one of the elements of what we're engaged in here together is learning what it means to hold our own heart, to hold our own, what we call self, to hold our own life with that kindliness, with that love, with that supportiveness in a way that allows the heart to open. And in a way that equally allows us to open our heart to hold others. To actually embrace and encompass others in that capacity of holding. It seems that we need to love. I would state this as a, as a principle of human existence. We need to love. If we don't love, we can't really live. And we initially learn and experience the situation, most of us, I think, where we come to understand that it's, it's safe to love when we are loved. And that maybe it's not safe to love if we don't feel or perceive that love coming towards us from outside us. And yet, we can learn to love unconditionally. We can learn the capacity to extend that love to ourselves in such a way to know that loving in ourselves, perhaps there's even a better way to put that, to know the loving capacity in ourselves in such a way that allows it to be extended without being dependent upon whether we are feeling that love coming towards us from a person, a situation, or a you know, worldly circumstance. So, there's a few elements to this territory which I want to just touch upon and uh, one of them we've spoken about a little already in various ways. The experience we have of this world, our our life being not in our control. We come back to this again and again to see that what we encounter is sometimes scary, sometimes threatening, possibly even violent or dangerous, and certainly unpredictable. And it's not easy to stay open, it's not easy to stay open in the face of that reality. That's something we have the opportunity to contemplate here, to see it's challenging. It's not easy. Nobody's saying that it is easy to open our hearts in the face of the unpredictability, the uncontrollability of things and the vulnerability we have to being impacted by that in ways we can't control. And yet that way in which we can relate to life from a place of fear, in which we're We're kind of trying to somehow prevent ourselves from encountering the difficult, the painful, the scary, the challenging. It leads to so much of a sense of contraction of tightness, and we've spoken about this in different ways. It's interesting to contemplate, perhaps to reflect, how much of our life may have been spent trying to avoid what we fear. How much time? How much energy, how much thought, how many resources we have employed, both personally and nationally, globally even, to try and avoid encountering what we fear. And probably most of us would have to answer that quite a bit of our time, our life, our resources are engaged in this process of trying to avoid that which we fear. we've probably also come to understand this doesn't really work. That we need to attend to the fear itself. This is something we need to understand. Mark Twain once observed, or so I've been told. I wasn't present, obviously. Um, he once observed that all of, almost all of the worst experiences of my life Never actually happened. So much of the suffering born of fear is born of the way in which we lose contact with we, where we are and are drawn, pulled, and projected into the future. And the, the lost in what might happen experience is one of the most painful things we can encounter. And we can't really deal with it because it's not there, it's here to understand with fear that it generates a story about what's going to happen in the future, but it's always an experience happening right here. That's the only place we can ever really meet it and deal with it in the immediacy of the experience. And We've talked about the possibility of feeling into, of opening into, of just seeing what's it like if I sit with and meet this experience. Now, it's useful also to be able to distinguish what's that movement into the future in relationship to something that's not immediate, that's not actual, from how we respond to a situation where there may be actual immediate danger, in which appropriate caution is required. And there's a a, a wonderful story of a conversation with a great teacher, J. Krishnamurti, he was once uh, talking about fear and the way human beings live in in fear so much of the time, and it was in a large auditorium. And someone stood up from the uh, the sort of the the second tier. I don't know what you call it, the circle or the you know the one that's a long way up anyway. And and he said, "Sir, Krishnamurti, I think fear is a good thing. Fear stops me jumping off this balcony right now and hurting myself." Krishnamurti looked up at him. He said. That's not fear. That's intelligence. (laughs) And so seeing there's a very clear difference between the caution that we bring to a situation where there is actual immediate danger. That's useful, functional, important. But if we worry about what might happen if I go up to the top of the balcony while I'm sitting on the floor and if I go up there, maybe I might get tempted to jump over and we get anxious about that that's not intelligence. You can see the difference, huh? Of course, when we don't understand that that's what's going on with fear, what we tend to do is engage in a reaction to the thing which we fear. And in that, there's a a pushing away. If we can't escape from it, we tend to push on it. We tend to wish to get rid of it. And we can call this, in a, in more common language, the, the movement of anger. That, that way in which we, instead of withdrawing from, which is what fear tries to do, we start trying to push away onto that which we feel threatened by, or which we're experiencing as difficult or painful. And it can seem that in that situation, it's really justified, it's right that I should close my heart to that person or situation or thing or part of myself that's impacting me in a difficult way. That's giving rise to either fear or something more immediately painful. And the kind of thoughts that arise in terms of it's not fair or this person is bad or these people or that group of people or oneself, we, we relate to ourself in, in a very strongly critical, negative, judgmental way. This anger that arises towards others or towards ourselves, because in our life we encounter that which is difficult or painful. Or in life we see those or others that we care for, likewise encountering that which is difficult and painful. And The effect that we can recognize in this is a closing of the heart, a tightening, a hardening. And sometimes we can physically recognize it in the the body, a density, a solidification, an armoring of this, this region of the torso, the front and back of the central torso region. And sometimes what we encounter in the meditation is places of, when it's tender or maybe tight or hard or numb, actually getting in contact with the residue, with the impact of our history in life with the holding and the tightening that goes on, mostly unconsciously, not even intentionally, but nonetheless very impactfully in the body. And so we're asked to make contact with, to let ourselves feel into, to to be touched by those experiences, to really embody them, to breathe with them, to allow them, as we've talked about, to begin to, to soften, to begin to widen, to begin to open in their own time as they can and as they do. But it's also really important to reflect upon what's happening here. What is going on in this process where we close our heart to ourselves, to others? And what will support it opening? One element of the understanding that's needed here is to understand simply that it doesn't serve. Quite straightforward, clear, that we close in order to protect ourselves. We think, we believe. We don't even think it, of course. It's not a thought. It's a, it's a biological response. In the same way, if you, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you poke a little sort of amoeba under a microscope with a little prod, it sort of shrinks away and tries to tighten itself up. It's a cellular thing that every cell in our body has this kind of programmed response to being impinged upon, of trying to tighten. But then, mostly, at the, a lot of animal kingdom levels, once that tightening isn't required anymore, it softens back up. But we tend to just hold the tightness because we have the capacity to remember the impingement. And we carry the impingement with us long after we're being impinged upon in a tightening, in a holding. And it's painful, and it's limiting, and it's, it's actually deeply grievous to the heart to be impacted in this way. To understand that this is a cost, that we at some level collude with paying when we don't really examine what's going on, when we invest in and believe that we are right to be angry, to close our heart. His Holiness the Dalai Lama was once interviewed and uh, with all the really difficult and, tra- tr- and challenging circumstances of his life and his country, Tibet, the reporter who was interviewing was asking, "Your Holiness, it seems so many difficult things have happened to you. Why is it that you you don't seem to be angry? We can't understand this. Why are you not so really furious about what has happened? Why do you seem to be so sort of even friendly or kindly?" towards those who have done this to you and the uh, his holiness responded he said you know he was referring to the to the chinese government he said you know they've taken my country they've exiled me from my home they've persecuted my people they've destroyed my monasteries and nunneries and imprisoned my Monks and my nuns, they've taken from me everything they could take, he said. Should I let them take my heart as well? Remarkable understanding to see this. We we can't control what happens around us. It's okay, of course, and important to do what we can to protect ourselves when we need to, so far as we're able to. But some things. We, we don't have that option with regard to. And the only place in the end that we can keep is our home, as our temple, as our land and our people in a sense is what we have in our heart that has the capacity to stay open even when we might initially doubt that capacity. And the Buddha once offered perhaps one of the most you know, challenging propositions that one could be confronted with. He once said in the very well-known simile of the saw, he said, even though you were being sawn in half by bandits employing a two-handled saw, so it's one on each end, even though you are being sawn in half, one who would dwell with their heart not inclining towards loving-kindness, would not be a follower of my teaching. And it's kind of like, hmm, okay, so that's a, <laughs> a bit of a challenge, isn't it? You know, hmm, I can see I've got a little way to go with my meta-practice, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, it's kind of good to set the bar high. Um, I think it's really important with that that kind of teaching and understand to... It's translated in different ways, but certainly as I understand it, the Buddha is suggesting and speaking to us about a possibility of where we orient towards. Now, I can imagine that, well, maybe not the Buddha, but most of us would feel a few other things as well if that was happening. But what's important is there is the intention, that one's intention would be, so far as possible, to orient towards loving-kindness. Now, the Buddha didn't say anything about, if you can stop them, sawing you in half with a two-handed saw, you shouldn't bother, just let them do it. (laughs) To me, it's pretty clear that if you're able to in some way protect yourself so this doesn't have to happen, do it, of course. But if it's happening, how do you want to go out? How would you wish to leave this world if it came down to it in that situation? Filled with anger or hatred? Or seeing what could be brought forth from your heart? Into that circumstance, and incredibly challenging. But of course, it's just a—it's just a simile. <laughs> Fortunately, and yet sometimes the challenges we encounter are are hard. It's not easy for us to find our way through the reactivity, to find a way to a place of opening. And so. As well as looking at the the way fear leads to this contraction and tightening, we equally need to examine the function and the experience of anger in hardening our heart and tightening us. Understanding at one level that it doesn't really serve isn't necessarily always enough. We might see and know, and if we've spent any time at all, as we all have, paying attention to our experience and connecting with what's going on, we realize how painful it is to be caught in those patterns and cycles of negativity. It's excruciating. I mean, the real reason we want something that irritates or annoys us or makes us angry to go away isn't so much to do with that we want it to go away. It's we want the experience of the anger to go away because that is so painful to us. If we can actually see that they're not the same thing, suddenly there's a lot more possibility of freedom there. But, but what we can also reflect on and understand is that one of the elements within the movement of anger is this attempt to protect ourselves. And there's something wholesome in the vitality, the energy, the life force that arises in the immediate face of danger, where it's actually right coming towards us that might say no stop, or that's not okay, and be quite firm and even fierce about it. That's not anger in the unskillful sense. That's protective wisdom, and that's something we need, and should be supported and encouraged to employ. In fact, this world needs us at times to stand up and say no, or you need to do that when this is in the service and the support of Protecting of beings or supporting the well being of ourselves or others. And it can sometimes be needed this kind of vitality, this energy to break through what can otherwise be the paralysis of fear. That when we're afraid in a situation of danger where something is actually immediately dangerous to us, sometimes we freeze. And that vitality, that energy that comes up and just says, no, is important. Sometimes that's a useful response to the patterns of self-judgment and criticism that we experience internally. To actually just say, no, that's not skillful. That's not kind. That's not helpful. Don't speak to me like that. Sometimes that's necessary. it's sometimes I think a misunderstanding of the Dharma teachings to imagine that one should always simply meekly receive the aggression of another and yet there's a danger in the territory again and uh, another story touches me in this in this context is uh, again with his Holiness the Dalai Lama, who, when he he's in his um, in his residence in Dharmasala he he receives all the all the people who, as refugees, flee across the mountains. And a, a number of Tibetans over the years, quite a significant number, have made the very arduous and dangerous journey across the mountains from Tibet to Dharmasala in India, and there in danger of being um, shot if they're seen by the uh, the border guards, and they're in danger of uh, falling over precipices or freezing in the extreme cold conditions. And he met this very elderly monk who had just recently come over, and he, he asked him, Sir, good sir, noble friend, can you tell me in your journey, were you ever in danger? And the monk looked at him and he said, only when in my heart I started to hate the Chinese government. And again, that incredible wisdom to see that that is the real danger here. That when we allow our heart to be consumed by the wish to push away or destroy, which is when anger doesn't manage to push away what we want to push away with it, it tends or it starts to harden and kind of I'm not sure of the word of the process anyway, it starts to harden into hatred, in which actually the wish is to destroy that which we feel threatened by or feels to have been the cause of our suffering. And there's a there's an incredible violence that's done internally to ourselves. When, we, when we're when we caught in the movement and the pattern and that hatred where we wish to destroy, what we actually do is lose contact with a part of ourself. Something in ourself shuts down. That's how it actually works. And we lose access to part of our heart. And to a certain extent, we can't just shut down part of it. We actually find the whole heart starts to shut down. We can't shut it down just to one person or situation. The whole thing starts to shut down. We don't feel. We're not touched. We're not able to resonate so easily or sometimes at all. So again, seeing there's this this need to reflect on the impact on ourselves, not just on others, but on ourselves, of these very strong and deeply conditioned patterns. And there's a, there's a profound healing that's called for here, a profound healing of our lives and of this world, in which we need to acknowledge life's pain. We need to acknowledge that this Reality is not one in which we are guaranteed to be free from danger, free from pain, even free from harm. And yet that this is not a basis for justifying closing our heart to life. Sometimes it might be appropriate to step back from to make some space from. Sometimes when we say no, we aren't heard. And it's very appropriate and right at times to say, okay, I'm going to step back from this. I'm going to step out of the situation. That's a skillful and appropriate withdrawal. But usually it works if we keep our attention and we stay in touch with that which we're backing away from so we don't turn our back on it. In our inner experience, when something feels overwhelming or too difficult, what's helpful is to move the attention away, but in a way still stay a little attuned to or oriented to what's there. So it's not an escape or a running away from, but just a skillful and appropriate backing off. So sometimes that's needed in order to allow us to find... Again, a degree of space or ease that allows us to work with the experience. But in terms of, with that acknowledgement that yes, life includes this, we have to see what conclusions we are drawing from that fact. What beliefs we are operating under, what views we are holding to, as a way of explaining the fact that there is this which we call pain. There is this which we call hurt, which we do not wish to be exposed or subject to. We so quickly blame, we so quickly come to believe that others, or at times even ourselves, really wish to cause harm in this world to ourselves or others. And in fact, it's a blindness that, that comes out of our own suffering. Blindly trying to escape from our own pain, we do things that cause harm to others. We've all done this. It's important to reflect on the truth of this. No one of us here, certainly not myself, will have lived their life to this point without at times causing harm to other people. Perhaps even occasionally intentionally. Intentionally. More often, not intentionally, but perhaps born of intentional actions. Maybe sometimes born of accident. But if I look and if I examine for myself where that's come from, what's going on, in that, what I see is that at times there's been a, a desperate need to escape from something that was too painful to bear, that I didn't know how to handle. I wasn't even fully aware of what was happening. And the The striking out or the pushing away or the withdrawing from another person is coming from that. And seeing that, reflecting on that, it seems to me that this must be so also for others. This must be how it is for everyone else. We can't know what it's like for other people. Not for sure, even if they tell us what it's like. We don't know, but we can know what goes on for ourselves. And we can see at times the, the mistakes of life that we may have made. To understand that this is born of blindness, and it's like as if we were sitting on a park bench somewhere, just maybe, well, maybe not this time of year, um, <laughs> maybe with a good coat on, and we're just sitting there, maybe you know, reading a newspaper or enjoying the view. Someone comes walking along the path near. And as they walk past us, they kick our foot really painfully, and it's like, what's the first response? It's like, you stupid, or you cruel, or you know, you bad person. And just imagine that response. It might seem quite natural. You might even think that, of course, that would be a stupid thing, bad thing to do. And then, as with the whole reaction happens, we look up at the person. We see they're wearing dark glasses and carrying a white cane on the other side, from the side they've kicked us. And immediately our response changes, doesn't it? Immediately we realize, oh, oh my gosh, this person wasn't being callous or cruel or even careless. They were just trying to make their way down the path. And in fact, we left our foot sticking out there. We might have tripped them up. That would have been kind of sad. And there can be a sense of, if we see this is true for ourselves, perhaps we can also trust that this is true for every other being. And there's a place of forgiveness that comes from this understanding. There's a place of opening that comes from seeing this. And there's an image which some of you will have probably heard me describe a few times that I'd like to share. One of the arts of teaching I was reflecting this evening is being able to say things that you've said many times before, as if you're saying it for the first time. (laughs) And one of the great arts of being a student and listening to teachings, which I also do, is To listen to things you've heard many times before is if you're listening for the first time. (laughs) So it's practice for both of us. But in this scenario, just, just imagine that you're walking in the woods one day and you see a small puppy beside a tree and having some appreciation and enjoyment of young creatures such as puppies, you reach out to stroke it and it bites your hand. What's your response? Again, a bit like the previous scenario, sitting on the chair. The response, probably, if I think about it, is like, "You bad dog! You shouldn't bite me! I'm going to teach you a lesson." Yeah, something like that. You recognise? Maybe you've put a stronger language, possibly. Yeah? <laughs> and you, as you have this reaction to the puppy, you look at it and you see its foot is caught in one of those steel spring-loaded traps with jaws. Again, there's that moment of <sighs> suddenly you see what's happening. This creature that seems to have attacked you when you were being trying to be friendly is actually in pain. It's actually in fear. It's desperately trying to find some way out of its situation. And it's bitten you. It's a call for help. It's bitten you. And in that moment, of course you might want to extract your hand from its mouth. Yeah, that's a good idea. Not like you think, oh poor thing, have my hand to eat. You must be hungry. Yeah. But you're not going to be angry with that little creature, are you? The heart is not going to close to it. It's going to open really quickly. Because actually the pain of getting bitten in the hand is probably nothing like having your whole leg in a steel trap for gosh knows how long. But we can relate to it. It's passed on a little bit there. And then actually we want to help this creature get out of that trap. Maybe we want to have a word to ever put the trap there. That's another, another piece. But in that scenario, we could see again maybe how that would shift. And so... Then just imagine some time later you're walking again in the woods and oh, forgotten about that previous encounter. It was, you know, nothing to remember really, just one of those things that happens. And you're walking along and you see a puppy and, oh, puppies, I like puppies, reach out to stroke it, it bites you. And you look at it, because one does if you've just been bitten by a puppy. You look at it. And you see that it's standing shoulder deep in leaves, it's fall, And it's standing shoulder deep in leaves, you can't see its feet. You can't see its legs. You don't know what's going on in there. What would it require for you to know that this puppy's foot was in a trap? Even though you couldn't see the trap or the foot. And it seems to me it would require us to understand that it's not the nature of puppies to want to bite or attack anyone. Unless they're in pain, unless they're afraid, unless they're suffering and trying to find some way out of that. It's not the nature of puppies any more than it is the nature of you or I. And we need to find that understanding and that forgiveness for ourselves and our hearts. It's so important. And equally of course forgiveness for others. But we really have to start with ourselves most of us. To see the things that we have done that have caused harm and suffering to others have come from our own suffering. And a a blind and often totally unhelpful attempt to extricate ourselves, we perpetuate the cycle of the suffering. We cannot create the conditions in this world to no longer or never again encounter a life Without or to experience a life without pain, the body, heart, and mind are subject to these things. You know, the Buddha spoke of, and we've used the uh, I think the phrase birth, aging, sickness, death as, kind of the things we encounter in the body, injury and accident, of course, and that being included within that. In regard to the heart, he spoke of sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation, and despair you think oh gosh that doesn't sound you know like quite what i'm here for <laughs> and he also spoke of the encounter of the mind of of being separated from what we love being associated with what we dislike and not getting what i want and the suffering of the mind we can't make a life in which we don't encounter these things but we can learn to meet all of this with love. We can learn to trust the profound wellspring of goodness in the heart of the human being, to find its way into the, into the light of our life, to touch us and all around us with this. When I was first travelling in Asia, I, I, after some months, arrived in India, and I was quite interested. It was quite excited, and had been looking forward to looking up and meeting my Indian grandmother, who I'd never met before and knew very little about. She lived in Calcutta, and still lives at least part of the year there, um, and I didn't know very much about her except that. I knew she had been one of the young women who, together with Gandhi and the movement of non-violent resistance, had sat in front of the guns of the British Army and uh, the Raj, as it was called in India, and actually said, no, we will not bow down to your violence. We will not be violent in response, but we will meet with an open heart your attack. And eventually overcame that that oppressive regime, one of the most remarkable expressions of love and nonviolence in sort of world and political history. And I remember arriving to her little place, just a little sort of apartment she had, and knocking on the door. And as she came to it, I saw there was a little sign on the door before I even met her. And it struck me, Something and she she turned out to be quite an embodiment of this. But it said on the door, "Hail guest, we ask not what thou art. If friend, we greet thee hand and heart. If stranger, such no longer be. If foe, our love will conquer thee." (laughs) Very sweet but there was something true about it because this was actually something she lived and she's quite a remarkable old lady still in her mid-90s and uh, I see her about once a year Um, and there's a way in which she spent her life so far as she could trying to embody this, this possibility Catherine told me I need to tell you that she's just an ordinary person which is also true. But quite remarkable. A remarkable ordinary person. The world is actually full of them. And that sense of trusting in the power of love. Trusting that the courage and the integrity and the, and the, the strength of being willing to say, I will stand with my heart open in the face of what comes. And trust that that is actually not just possible, but powerful. So there's this spirit of loving kindness that we're invited to engage with, that is evoked, that is called forth in the spiritual life. And the Buddha, Buddha spoke of this in, in the metta sutta, which one of the phrases that I I find so touching and really just love to just reflect on again and again. And it's the the sutta which Greg chanted so beautifully in the Pali on uh, the New Year's Eve. And one of the phrases is, as a mother with her very life would protect her child, her only child, so too could one cherish all beings And this beautiful sense of again coming back to that sort of mothering function that protective love that we seek for that we wish for there's something quite quite amazing in what is possible for it to bring into this world and uh, it always makes me think also when I reflect on that the, the that, that that teaching that this is how we could be in the world, to cherish all beings. The the story of my other grandmother, my uh, my father's mother, who was a a Romanian Jewish woman living in the um, in Romania at the uh, time before and previous, but the time of uh, World War Two and the the Holocaust in, in Eastern Europe and beyond, in fact, that she had a two-year-old boy, my father, with her when they were sent to a labor camp. And obviously my father and, in fact, well, you wouldn't know, obviously my father survived that. Very few children of that age made it through that time and that circumstance. My grandmother escaped with my father, two-year-old baby, by jumping into a pit latrine and standing there for 6 hours with him on her shoulders until it was safe to come out in the dark and go down to the river to clean herself when i think of the what a mother could do to protect her child it just it's it's still very impactful for me there are many stories like this in the world again an ordinary human being but doing what she needed to do to with her life and and the strength of her body, she's just a little woman. But something in her, whew, there was some strength there to do that. Left her, you know, and she lived wild in Eastern Europe, in the, in the forest through the remainder of the war. And I wouldn't be here if she hadn't been able to do that. Incredible. There are so many stories like this in the world that speak to us of a immense human capacity. Not just a love, but a strength in that love. We sometimes think of love as something a little soft or mushy. It's not. It's remarkably powerful. It's remarkably powerful. And there are stories all over the world and throughout the ages of this that I think it's useful to hear, to reflect on, to contemplate. Some of them are simple, sweet stories of of human kindness and generosity and one of the ones that I always love to share is the story of Ryo Kan, a Zen monk who was one of my favourite teachers, a a poet, a a mystic and a a very simple human being it seems who liked to play with the children and uh, wrote exquisite poetry. And one time it seems that Ryo Kan was observed on a cold winter's day in the frost in Japan taking the lice out of his robe and placing them on a rock in the sun to warm themselves, and sun themselves. And even more remarkably, at the end of the day, observed picking them back up from the <laughs> rock and putting them back in his robe. And you wonder, what was that man's heart? What had he known? What had he learnt? How, how amazing, how beautiful. Just such a simple thing, and yet so touching to hear and to share and to reflect upon so many ways as human beings we have this capacity it seems so many ways we can we can touch each other in this world so what we see what we experience what we can observe as a direct process in our life and in our meditation is the way in which that movement of craving and of aversion, I've been mostly talking about the negativity sides of it, the way that fear, anger and hatred closes down the heart. And part of what's in that is there's a a way in which to operate in that way. There's a view, there's a belief system that justifies the behavior that, as I'm saying, as I'm speaking about, hopefully there's a sense we see actually What's called, what's needed is compassion in response to even those that cause suffering in this world. Even those that may seem to be the least forgivable. And sometimes, of course, we imagine ourselves to be that person. And we are all forgivable when we see the suffering that underlies that harming behavior. But seeing that it also comes out of a view That somehow we are separate from that which we are impacted by. That somehow it's being done to me. And even within ourselves, that sense of separation, of fracturedness arises. That some part of me feels like something else in me did that to me. And then reacts against or rejects that part. But the nature of love, the love that is there in the the depth of the heart, is that it doesn't see separation. That it sees what it sees as not other. To see what we see as not other. This is the wisdom of love. This is love and wisdom together. To see all beings, things, forms as of the same essence, of the same nature, expressions of and part of the same life. This, is, this seeing is, is very much at the heart of what we're interested in discovering and understanding. And there's a piece I'd like to read from Black Elk, who was a, a holy man of the Oglala Sioux Nation. And he described an experience uh, in his book, Black Elk Speaks. He described an experience he once had. He said, And then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all. And round and beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell. And I understood more than I saw, for I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the Spirit, and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops that made one circle, wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the centre grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one Father, and I saw that it was holy." The mental function of perception categorizes and divides and separates. We experience the appearance of inside, outside, self, other, this, that. But the awakened heart doesn't see it this way. In the greatness of our human heart, there is that capacity to see all beings, all things as they are, part of an undivided wholeness. And in that wholeness, has the same root as healing and as holy. We see that unifying has a healing. There's a healing of a, of a split that we may have believed or imagined or identified with as being ultimately true that in fact is revealed as not so. That the holiness, the wholeness, the holiness of life is alive. Indivisibly, in conscious communion with itself. And we can sense this sometimes in the stillness. In the giving ourselves completely and wholly to this. Letting our heart be open to be touched, to vibrate, to resonate with with all of this. Allowing ourselves to be that open. Taking the risk that we might discover something as yet, undiscovered, and yet alive in us, nonetheless. Alive in us, nonetheless. To see, it's not we that are moving through this life, but life moving through the very heart of this truth that is awake. This heart of truth that is neither moving nor still. This loving knowledge bridges the appearance of separation. It heals the rent fabric of our life. And it it dissolves the sense of other in in this seeing, in this knowing the movement of love and of compassion is the most natural and organic thing we could imagine. It's not something we do or have to do. It's what happens. It's just what happens. As we free the heart and mind from the encrusted obscurations and beliefs in separation, division and oppositionality. And we just see that there's this, just this indivisible, just this, and its nature is love, equally as its nature is awareness, and equally as its nature is just this, thisness, the suchness that is, that we know. And that we can know ever more deeply. Just as Shantideva said, an Indian mystic and uh, poet and teacher of the 6th century, he said, when my hand, sorry, when my foot hurts, my hand just goes to rub it. The hand rubs the foot. It doesn't think about it. It just, it's, such, it's the most natural thing. If the foot is hurt, the hand rubs it. And it doesn't think, this is my sort of addition to what he said, it doesn't think this is a great hand rubbing the foot. It just rubs the foot. It doesn't think the foot owes me one. I've done it a favor. It just rubs the foot. It's just, it's just what happens. And, you know, it's a hand. It looks really different than a foot. Foot's down here. You you know where it is. I'm not going to get it out, don't worry. (laughs) But in one sense, it's a hand and that's a foot. But where is it a hand and a foot? Where does this thing end and that thing begin? There is no place where this is separate from that. And that's so clear to us. This hand, foot is just one thing. And it's obvious that it just cares for itself. And so Shanti Deva went on to say, he said, You know, just as we see these limbs as part of this body, can we not see all beings as limbs of embodied life? Can we not see that this is so? He said, when acting on behalf of others, no amazement arises in me. Just as when feeding myself, I don't expect anything in return. It's complete. Because there's a wholeness. There's a completeness that's here to be known, to be discovered. That's in our heart. Always. Ryokan says, Do you want to know what's been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. So let's sit quietly for a moment or two together. And so may we all in our practice and in our lives find the freedom in our hearts to release the contractions of fear and anger. May we all together deepen in loving kindness and rest knowingly And awake, abiding in the great heart of life. For our own awakening, for the awakening of all beings.